Fellowship Church. I think we have uh, some that are watching online, uh, some because they'd, they'd rather be here, but they're battling something, and we want to keep them in prayer uh, and hope that they can recover and rejoin us soon. But we thank each of you for, for being here. Um, I want to invite you to pray with me because I want this time to be a time that energizes you, encourages you for living life uh, that is sometimes in a very discouraging world. Uh, but let's, let's pray to that end. Father, we don't want this to be a lecture. We want this to be a life-changing moment. We know that won't happen from uh, human words, certainly not from words that come from me. Uh, we pray that the words on the page will come alive because it is your living and active word. We pray that it would do its work in us so that we live uh, in light of it throughout the rest of the week, that Sunday morning matters for Monday morning and beyond. Uh, so help us to pay attention, to be alert to what you're saying, to check what I'm saying with what is in Scripture, and we pray that your Spirit would make the meaning clear so we can live it, and that your Spirit would empower us and give us the strength we need to live it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, it's no surprise to you that uh, the world will mock you for it. If you haven't been mocked in some time, it might be because you've been quiet about the things you actually believe, that a, a man named Jesus was killed, rose again, and then ascended into the sky and disappeared out of their sight. A human being just floating up into the sky who promised he'll come back 2,000 years ago. And 2,000 years later, churches all over the world are still waiting, still waiting for this return. Now, could you imagine if you didn't grow up in the church, you're not a believer, how that would sound to you? Like if somebody told you, I believe, you know, Hector of Troy is coming back, like some myth. It sounds ridiculous. And they will let you know that it sounds ridiculous. The louder you are about your faith and what you actually believe, the more the world will test you for it. And Peter addresses that specific thing here. And what the, the twist to it is, these aren't just people outside the church. They're people that claim to have some kind of belief in God, but they change it and alter it to sort of root out the ridiculous things of Scripture. And that is not stuck in the first century. That's now. You know, I, we believe this part of Jesus. We don't believe that part of Jesus. We take this ethical stuff to be true, but not the miracle stuff to be true. And so it goes. But if you'll turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3, you'll see he addresses this teaching of these false teachers. He's been railing against the false teachers for over a chapter, and now he gets to one specific thing that they've brought up to the church as confusing, confusing believers. It's discouraging believers as it is for us today. And so it's not new for a Christian to feel weird living out there. It's always been that way. And he writes this to encourage them. Look at the first couple verses there. He says, Now this is the second letter I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. 
Now, if I were grading this for a student's paper, I'd cross out one of the scoffers and be like, use a different word. You already said scoffers. What else do scoffers do? But he's using it for emphasis, right? Scoffers that come with scoffing, this is what they're going to do. They're going to mock you. They're going to belittle your faith. They're going to revile what you are holding to be true. And I'm writing this so that you hold on to it, even in the face of it. Not to hide from them, not to never befriend them, not to never be vocal about your faith, but to cling to your faith even though they're scoffing. So he's writing them again and giving them the reason why he's writing this letter to his beloved, stirring them up by way of reminder. This isn't new information. We've covered this before, right? He likes to bring to their mind things that he taught them already. And so he's going to remind them. He's going to ask them to recall it and cling to it. And this isn't something that Peter made up. He's saying it's the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. And he introduces this very important point. And here's where, here's where the rubber meets the road. Why do they scoff? It's not just because they think it sounds ridiculous. It's because if it were true, they'd have to change their lives. That's why they scoff. And he tells them that. He says there's the predictions of the holy prophets, the commandment of our Lord. Those things aren't unclear. They're clear. But the scoffers are going to come in the last days, which we're in. Peter was in, and so were we. It's the stretch of time, this last epoch of history between the Lord's ascension and His return. And they're going to come with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, see? They just want to do what they want to do. And if there is no judgment day, you get to do what you want to do. And so it's not enough for them to say, well, we believe God exists. We might say, well, atheists like to say God doesn't exist because they want to do what they want. That's not enough. You can still believe God exists as long as you believe He doesn't do anything about sin. You can still do what you want. And so you have a sort of brand of religion that over the years has been labeled deism, where you do believe God exists. It's not atheism. Deism, you do believe God exists, but he, he brought things into order and he created things and then he kind of just leaves it alone. He's, he's like the derelict parent that just kind of walked away, you know? Uh, he, he left and isn't really coming back and you're, you're, we're here to fend for ourselves and figure out for ourselves what good behavior is and what we want to do. So might as well, might as well live it up. He hasn't come back yet. He hasn't intervened. And so he recognizes that these scoffers are out there. And what I love about Peter, as sort of a dad to his dear readers, his beloved readers, he's not the kind of parent that's like, just shut up, memorize the Scripture, and just repeat it after yourself. I'm not going to give you a reason. I'm not going to give you a defense. Just believe it and be quiet. He's going to give them reasons. You know, if you get into it with these scoffers, here's some arguments actually, that you can bring to their attention. These scoffers forget some very important things. So he's going to give them some defense, and we should take note of it because it is still part of how we talk about our faith to a mocking world today. He says the scoffers come with scoffing. They follow their own sinful desires. That's for you to understand where they're actually coming from. But okay, let's talk about the theology. He says in verse 4, here's what they say. They will say, and not just what they do say, Peter's pushing into the future, this is what they're always going to say. But they will say, where is the promise of his coming? 
In other words, they're not arguing that there were no, they're not saying there were never any predictions, that the Lord Jesus never talked about it, that the apostles never said it. Okay, they said that there's this promise, but where is it? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, I think probably the, the patriarchal fathers of the faith, Old Testament, ever since they fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. I grant you that, that God exists, but everything continues unchanged because God doesn't intervene. God doesn't interact. God just stays out there somewhere. We know He's out there, but there's no interaction at all. And that's proven in the fact that day to day, week to week, month to month, do you see God showing up? Do you see God breaking into your life and changing things? No. You, you bump along life like everybody bumps along in life. So why cling to this promise that hasn't come true? Peter says, ah, but you admit He created and if God created the world, then you already admit that He has intervened, hasn't He? How can a God not be stepping in if He already stepped in? He created down to the very details, the molecules, the cellular structure of a human being. Like He, he created that. That is intricate. And so He didn't just uh, watch creation happen from afar. He created it. So they say things keep going since they have since the beginning of creation. And Peter's like, ah, keyword creation, right? Verse 5, for they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. So God, there was this earth that was formless and void. You remember in Genesis? We don't know when that was created. But when God speaks in creation, He creates something out of this ball of water. He separates the water. You've got the sky. You've got the sea. Out of the sea, out of the oceans, He pulls out land. Dry land appears and He forms all of creation. So of course God intervenes. Of course God intervenes. And then again, He, he reminds you what's really going on. They deliberately overlook this fact. They, they're intentionally going, eh. Why? Their sinful desires. He's just reminding you. This is where they're really, because this is the real issue. The real nub of the issue is they want to do what they want to do. So you can talk to unbelievers on the level of theology. You can talk to people who claim to know certain things. You can talk about the inconsistency of their logic. As long as you remember at the end of the day, what really is going on is their heart is not a repentant heart. That's what's happening. So he pushes it further. Because they might say, well, God, yes, yes, God created and then he left it alone. And Peter says, no, he didn't. Because the same way that he drew the world out of water, he flooded it with water, don't you remember? So he's calling them to task. You say you believe the Old Testament. That's where you get your concept of God from. And you admit that he created, and you're getting that from Genesis. Don't you read the rest of Genesis? That he does intervene and watch a world become more and more wicked and that does displease God and it doesn't displease him from afar he actually steps in and does something about wickedness it's amazing to me that I didn't have to bring this point up to a deist I had dinner with once he brought it up and in fact if you were here a few weeks ago and I was sick and couldn't come and we had a video of me preaching or whatever I brought this up this instance where I, I, I was ministering to a guy I thought was an atheist and over dinner, I find out, oh my goodness, he's a deist. Actually, he says, I believe in God. I'm like, you do? Yes, I believe in God. Interesting. And so we start talking about that. And he says, uh, do you really believe 
Scripture is concrete. What do you mean by that? He says, do you believe, and he goes to the flood, do you believe God put all these animals in a boat? And I said, I do, but let me ask you a question. If you believe God exists and he created the world, do you think he could do that? Somehow, some way, can he get a man and his family to create a boat and put enough animals in there to recreate the world from there? And flood? Can, Does he have the ability to do that? Interestingly, he says he does have the ability, he can do it, I just think he won't do it. A God wouldn't do something like that. Why does he believe that? Here's where many people, if they embrace some kind of deism, they embrace it because, uh, firstly, because of the reason Peter gives us. But on a more surface level, it's because they, they can't believe in a God who is harsh, a God who judges, a God who would flood families, animals, just wipe out creation with a flood. So he says God wouldn't do that, implying God is too loving to get involved in a way where he's just smashing people. And my response to him was, it's the unloving God that wouldn't do that. The God who creates things and just lets people kill themselves, lets people get so wicked that no one can live righteously. They're just killing each other. Every thought is continually wicked and God's not going to do anything about it. He's just going to let bullies overrun the place and never step in. That's an unloving God. The loving God rolls up his sleeves and says, Enough! That's the loving God. He, of course, disagreed. But again, we get to push back on some of the assumptions to try to show the inconsistency of what they're saying they believe and at least take the edge off of the mocking and maybe get them to reconsider. They say, where's this promise? It hasn't changed since the beginning of creation. Peter says, but they overlook the fact that God created. That means he does step in. And then verse 6, he flooded them. That by means of these, the water, the same water that he used to make the dry land appear and create things, by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. And what that shows us is that God does intervene. He does judge He does take sin seriously. He is a just God. And because of that, we see, verse 7, that those promises have to be true about this ultimate one that's coming because the prior ones were true. Verse 7, but by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And so Peter's helping his readers understand that you need to respond to people that are scoffing, people that try to take some of Scripture, but they don't want to take all of Scripture, that you can't take out the love of God and leave behind the justice of God. Because it is a loving God that would be just. An unloving God wouldn't care about justice. But He does care. And He's demonstrated to us that He cares in the flood. And not only the flood, I'm sure if Peter wanted to keep writing, he can talk about all the other times that God intervened in Scripture with judgment. And so many times in the Old Testament, judgment is um, connected with fire. And so Peter's saying the first time it was water, this next time it's going to be more holistic. It's going to be bigger. It's going to be all of the earth and the heavens. Everything in it, it's stored up for fire for the ungodly. It's a day of judgment and destruction 
of the ungodly. It's not a day of destruction for the believers, but for the unbelievers, it is. And if you wanted to live an ungodly life, you can't stomach the idea of the reality of a day of judgment. So you've got to recreate God and twist the Scripture into a religion that doesn't have the judgment piece so you can do what you want. That's what's really happening. That's what the scoffers are really about. And he gives them, there's good reasons for the flood. There's good reasons for the coming judgment. But I know it still feels slow. And even if you win that argument in the coffee shop, and even if you like, yeah, I got that person to think, you know, I don't think I really got that person to think very much. I don't know. But even if you feel pretty good coming out of that engagement with a scoffer, you come back at home and you're still like, man, Peter was writing to his audience in the first century, and here we are 2,000 years later. What is taking so long? How bad does it have to get? How many viruses, plagues, fires, earthquakes, wars do we need? And Peter recognizes that, so he wants to talk directly to his readers, not just in a way to defend themselves against scoffers, but to encourage their own hearts, because I know it feels slow. It feels like God is asleep, or he's being really, really slow with this promised coming. And so he gives them some reasons for the slowness, or what appears to be a slowness. And the first one, probably drawing from Psalm 94, 90 verse 4, but do not overlook this one fact. Don't be like them overlooking stuff. Pay attention to what Scripture says, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Uh, the theory of the relativity of time <laughs> is not directly related to this, but there's a real sense theologically that time is relative, that God doesn't view or experience perhaps time the way we view and experience time. And so he wants you to kind of change your perspective. If, if you were to compare uh, you know, the experience of a dog to a gnat, you know, one lasts years and one lasts, I don't know how long a gnat lasts, but not years, right? That's, that's a big difference. And so for those of us who live very short lives, generations pass very quickly, especially due to sin. It wasn't always that way if you read the book of Genesis. Of course, for us, in our view, days and weeks and years fly by. As we say, boy, time flies, right? And so it's a matter of perspective. And from God's perspective, time does fly by because a thousand years, it's like a, a day to this eternal being. And so he wants to just put that out there to say, look, you can't hold God to your calendar. God has his own calendar. And so it's not... It, slow to whom would be the question. Slow to whom? Not to him. And since he's the center of all things, that's what matters. But he pushes it further in verse 9. The Lord actually is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. In other words, if you want to call it slow according to your own calendar. But even then, don't mistake slowness for patience. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So there, we have Peter's encouragement. He wants you to understand that time is a, pers a perspective thing. It's a relative thing. 
But he realized people might be like, oh, that's cheap, man. Well, from God's perspective, it's not slow. And it's kind of, well, it's not cheap because it's actually patience. And you should be glad that God doesn't rush to it. This is patience that is not just new for the New Testament. In the Old Testament, he would wait until wickedness reached a certain point, and then he would act. When does it reach that point? When he sees it reach that point. It's in the mind of God. We, don't, we can't put it on a calendar. Anyone who publishes any book or preaches, a, preaches any sermon and gives you a date is automatically wrong. <laughs> we, we don't have a date. We don't know how to figure out what day the Lord is coming. And unbelievably, throughout the history of the Christian church, recent history, some have published, you know, like reasons why Jesus is coming back in such and such a year, and then it doesn't happen, and still sells books by republishing, my bad, it's this other year, and still sells the books. We want to know a date, we want to know a time, we want to fit it into our calendar. How long do I have to goof off is really the underlying motive. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but He is patient. He is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Meaning, if He came sooner, more would perish, less would repent. How do we know when enough people have repented? We don't. He's just giving you God's reason for it. He's giving you God's reason for it. And so, as a good parent, Sometimes you don't want to just tell your kid, shut up and believe it, leave me alone. Sometimes you want to sit that child down and say, there are reasons here, but if they start poking, I'm like, but give me the reason. Show me the math. Show me your work. It's like, enough. You don't get to know everything I know, and if I sat here and tried to explain everything to you, you wouldn't be able to get it because you're four. And so Peter doesn't, isn't giving us all the information. He doesn't have all the information that God has. How long will it take? For those to reach repentance that God wants to reach repentance, God knows. 2,000 years, 3,000 years, we don't, we don't know. But we know why. We know why He's doing it. He's doing it because He does see it. He does see evil. He does see wickedness. And we're like, well, if He destroyed the world before with a flood, why doesn't He do it now? It's pretty bad. God knows when it's bad enough. He is watching. Well, if he's watching, then why is he slow? Well, he's patient, not slow. He's patient. And we should be thankful that we serve a God like that. We should be thankful that God knows when to do what he's going to do and that he doesn't roll out timelines for us to get distracted with. It is his patience that is the reason why things are still going. And yes, we can look at the world and see how bad things are getting, but we can also look at the world and see how the church is still expanding and the church is still growing. And that no matter how often and how hot the persecution gets against the church, believers are being born. Like born we're seeing conversions all over the world. And so we don't want to lament only the direction of our country, the direction of this nation, the direction of the whole world, yes, that's lamentable. But we should also be encouraged that in the darkness, light shines. And the church stands on a hill, and it's a beacon, and it will never be snuffed. It doesn't matter who's president. The church will never be defeated, ever. Governments have tried. Satan has tried. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church.
So why are we still waiting? We're still waiting because the church is still growing and we're still baptizing people and we're still discipling people and that church is still expanding even in the darkness. That's what God is being patient about. I'm kind of looking at the clock to see how much, do I ha- how much time do I have to talk about the elephant in the room for some of you. He's not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. I'm told that that means there's no such thing as election, that God wants everyone to be saved. So let me just unpack that really quickly, and then we'll move on, because I don't think the verse is really about that. This verse is not undoing the the concept of election. Election is something, if, if you came up with two or three verses that we get election from, it's from Peter. <laughs> so he's not undoing election, but what's going on here? Look, he says, God is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So what some will say is he's not willing that any person should perish, but that all reach repentance. That means anyone who wants to do it. No, it doesn't. It means he doesn't want a particular people to perish, but wants that particular people to repent. So what people will do is they'll say he doesn't want any to perish, meaning everybody, but he wants all to repent. Well, that can't mean everybody because we know at the end there will be a group of ungodly people that will be judged. So all can't mean all unless you believe everybody is going to eventually repent. We already know that. Some of us have the heartbreaking experience of going to a graveside and remembering a loved one that to the end denied God. What do you do with that? And throughout Scripture, people that God has judged, you know, the people that he flooded, people that Sodom and Gomorrah, are we going to see them in heaven? God judged them because they were unrighteous. The separation of the sheep and the goats, that's not Jesus going, I think that's going to happen, but I really hope it doesn't. He's going, there will be goats. There will be tares that have to be separated from the wheat. Some saved, some not saved. There's two groups in the end of the world. And so the Orthodox believer can't believe that everyone is going to reach repentance. That doesn't make any sense. We know only some reach repentance. So why does he say all? He says all because he's talking about all of those who do repent. And keep in mind, he's talking to a group of believers so that he says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, but is patient toward you. You, the believer. And those, I think, by implication, those who will become believers. Like Jesus prayed in John 17, not just for those who are now, but those who will come. So God is gathering in his elect, he's gathering in his people, and he's using time to do it. And as time goes on, he's gathering more and more people into this flock, more sheep, right, into this flock. And his patience is affording the time necessary to get that done. When is that finished? Some people say, well, when the last nation has heard the gospel. Well, how long does the gospel have to be promulgated in advance in that area? We don't know. I don't think as soon as the the last missionary steps foot in the last nation to hear the gospel, preaches the gospel, and then boom, Jesus returns. It's up to God to to, to decide how many will repent in those nations. So, the Lord's patience is not just toward the wicked in general, but to those who will repent And he's being slow because he's drawing in a number. We don't know the number. We don't know the time. We just know what he's up to. And what he's up to is this kingdom expansion. And so the Christian is torn. The Christian is torn because on the one hand, 
we want to pray with John. Lord, come. And that's good to pray. Scripture prays that. When you see the wickedness of the world and your heart aches for the Savior to just come and establish righteousness and wipe out wickedness, the psalmists pray that. New Testament authors pray that. That's good to pray. Lord, would you please come? But then there are other prayers, aren't there? We're like, Lord, don't come yet. We haven't reached these people yet. We haven't talked to these people yet. If you knew Jesus Christ, you can't. But if you knew Jesus Christ was coming back tomorrow night, how would you use the next 24 hours? Would you immediately think, I haven't even explained the gospel to this person yet. I keep waiting for it, ramping up, or try to lunch. I keep punting it down the field. But if I knew he was coming in 24 hours, I'd immediately do it. See, that's why God is being patient, because the gospel's still expanding. And so in one sense, we're like, Lord, please hurry up. But in another sense, we're like, I get the patience because we should be going to work right now. Proclaiming a gospel of repentance to give those the chance. The ark wasn't built overnight. While it's being built, Noah was a preacher. And Christ preached through people, through Noah. Come into the ark. There's room. And so the Lord's slowness is actually a beautiful thing. It's a demonstration of his love, his long wick, his patience, his long suffering. And the reason why is not because he doesn't want to have a confrontation that's kind of too ugly and he's uncomfortable confronting people. It's because he wants a group of people to reach repentance. And it says in verse 10, there's an implication for this. The return of the Lord is real and it will come quickly. By quickly, he doesn't mean tomorrow. He means when it happens, it's not going to be this long lead-up time like, hey, I'm coming, like bang, it happens, and that's it. A thief doesn't give a warning. Knock, hey, anybody home? I have my tool bag here. I'm going to bust the lock if you don't just open it. A thief, why does a thief not do that? Because announcing would mess up the job. And so what Peter's saying is, we don't have a particular date. We don't have particular signs. There are signs that let us know it's happening as we're culminating, but we can't pinpoint a date, right? We're not the Mayans with a calendar trying to nail this thing down to a particular year even. Why? Because Jesus intends to come like a thief would come. Right? Not telling you, hey, I'm coming, Clean up your act real quick. You should have already cleaned up your act because you should have responded to the gospel, not to a calendar event. So the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And just like that, the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Some debate whether Peter means that the earth is going to be annihilated because it sounds like it. (laughs) And others will say, well, I don't think it's annihilated. I think it's just refined. Like when you refine something through fire, get off all the dross, and then you just have the precious metal at the end of it. And I think it's the second one because of the time we spent in Romans 8 several weeks back, that the creation itself is groaning for this renewal. I don't think God's going to wipe out creation. I think he's going to renew creation so that our eternal resting place actually is this earth, a new earth, and that newness is going to come on the, on the other side of this burning up that not only burns up physical creation ready for a recreation, 
but at the end of verse 10, exposes all the works. It lays bare all the works that are done in it. Some people are like, well, what is that? He's talking about things being burned up, and now he's suddenly talking about works being exposed. That doesn't make sense. It must mean something else. Well, he's returning back to verse 7. It's a day of judgment. He's not judging the works of trees, the works of mountains. You know, you, you spill volcano one too many times, naughty mountain. He's talking about people, the unrighteous behavior of people. And so I think it makes complete sense. He's exposing the works, and by exposing them, it means that he is judging them as wicked, and they're receiving their due judgment on that day of the Lord. So here's how we are supposed to live in light of that fact He's not slow, he's patient, but that patience will come to an end, and when it does, it's going to be quick, it's going to be fast, it's going to be total. So how should we live? Verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Oftentimes the preacher studies a text and is wondering, like, what does this have to do? Because this is true, how are we supposed to live? Thanks, Peter. Peter was a preacher, man. He's like, look, I'm not going to leave you guessing. This is what you're supposed to live like. This truth doesn't belong on some theological shelf, on your eschatology shelf, a study of the last things, and you just study it when it's time for a Sunday school class or you're going to seminary. This affects your Monday, your Tuesday, your Wednesday. This affects your parenting, your marriage, your friendships, what you value, how you think. He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Holiness and godliness is our response to the truth that the day of the Lord is coming. And we wait for it, verse 12. We wait for it, but his waiting is not a passive waiting. It's an active waiting. You're making every effort, he says. You're being diligent, he's told us, to be holy and godly. And you're all the more diligent. You press into it all the more seriously because all the distractions of this world, the viruses, we're just, this is going to be forgettable, guys. We go, oh, yeah, there were viruses. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's consuming everything now, but in the span of eternity, this is a blip. And what we need to be focused on is growing in holiness, growing in godliness, even though people will scoff, even though people will laugh, even though you'll be mocked for it, even though you're the minority, even though you have to go to a workplace where everyone else is not a Christian, even though you've got to go to family reunions, Thanksgiving dinners with family that, are you still going to church? So let me ask you this. You put all these animals in a boat, talk with them, and don't be discouraged because you are pressing into holiness and godliness because you know it's true. He says that this is a place where righteousness dwells. Starting in verse 12, picking up verse 12, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will burn, will melt as they burn. And you're like, goodness, okay, this is just going to be this monstrous event. Yeah, but on the other side of it, what? Verse 13, but according to his promise, we're waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so he says, if you're waiting for a place of righteousness, 
Does it make sense for someone who's longing for a day where righteousness reigns to live unrighteously? No, if your hope, your desire, your ultimate goal for all of eternity is to be with this righteous God, to live in relationship with this righteous God, and to live in a place where righteousness dwells and reigns and there is no wickedness, how can you long for that and live wickedly? No, no, no. Wicked living is for people who don't believe that's going to be true. But for people who understand that's what's going to be true, what we're looking toward is a place of righteousness, then you should be living righteously now. You should be living righteously now. In holiness and in godliness because this new earth is going to be a place of righteousness. If you're really a believer who longs for that day, that'll be shown. And your longing for it will be proven in your righteousness now. Your care for it. None of us are going to be perfect, but we, do, we, do we care for it? Strive for it? Do we make a diligent effort at it? That's what he wants his readers to do. He wants them to hang in there. He wants them, to, in the face of everything that's in opposition to the faith, he wants them to hang in knowing that this place is going to be destroyed, renewed, and we will be in this place of righteousness, but you need to live in your repentance. Very interestingly, I want to point out uh, and not just pass up probably, I think, the hardest verse in Second Peter, even though other verses have been points of great debate. I think it's weird that he says hastening the coming of the day. Because these things are going to be dissolved, the world is going to be renewed, how are we supposed to live? We're supposed to live lives in holiness and guidance, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day. Some people try to say, well, he, well, he means they need to do it hastily. But that's not what it says. It says, as you live and as you wait, you're hastening the day. You're making it come faster. That's, that's what it says. And I don't know exactly what that means. I think it's a little mysterious. I don't think it just means the more people we go out there and convert, the faster God comes. Because that's not what he says. He connects it not to evangelism, but he connects it to holiness and godliness. Meaning, if you want Jesus to come back so bad and you're slumping it in your Christian life, you're the one slowing it down, pal. If you want Jesus to come sooner, then grow in godliness. And I just, when a text sounds weird, you just have to take it at face value and not twist it into something that makes more sense to you. Peter's saying his focus is not evangelism. He's not talking about foreign missions. He's not talking about planting churches. He's talking to his audience. He's saying, you, you. And interestingly, he, his audience is you when he says, reach repentance, come to repentance. I think that includes those who haven't come to repentance yet, but it still includes those who have come to repentance because we're still coming into repentance. The Greek says, into repentance. Why do we have confession and assurance on some Sundays? How come sometimes when we pray, we're like, Lord, forgive me? How come Jesus taught us to pray, forgive me as I forgive others? Well, what am I in? Forgive me. He already forgave me. Right, and he continues to forgive you. Why? Because you continue to fail. And even though you progress as a Christian, repentance is a lifestyle. Not in 1982 at my mother's bedside, I repented. Great! Awesome. What does it look like now? 
today we live in repentance. I like how the ESV put it, reach repentance. It's still this goal, even though you have it. And so he's focused on his believers. He's not talking about foreign missions, even though, of course, godly people, godly churches will proclaim the gospel, and that's included. But he's literally saying, if you want Jesus Christ to come back so bad, live like it. And perhaps he'll come sooner. As the Lord is looking at the earth, he sees the righteousness of his people growing, not just in number, but in maturity. And the day of the Lord is hastened. It's very easy as churches to be focused on numbers. It's hard for foreign missionaries to come home and it's like, how many? How many? We'll see how much we're going to continue to support you. (laughs) That's a hard pressure. Well, nobody yet. (laughs) Sometimes it takes generations for the gospel to really take hold and the missionaries doing faithful work. But if we're too concerned about numbers and less concerned about maturity... So we can ask the missionary, how's your family? How's your faith? Are you growing in godliness? And we turn those questions on to ourselves. We want to grow. We don't want to be stuck. You gave your life to Christ. You got rid of a couple bad things. You embraced a couple good things. And then you kind of stopped right there. And that's not good. We keep reaching into repentance. God continues to point out things that we need to clean up and fix. And we reach into it together. And we make a diligent effort together because we long for the perfect righteousness that's coming. It's not here perfectly yet, but it has broken into this world. A light has broken into this world. And even though there's a light that's coming, that means we don't even need the light of the sun, right? Jesus himself is the light of the world. And that's not here yet, but Jesus still tells us the church is light and we're salt. And so it's not fully here. But it's here, and it's growing, and it's expanding. And that should be not just encouraging to us, but challenging to us. To grow, continually grow into the grace that God has bestowed upon us, into the repentance in which we entered, because judgment day is coming. And the godly, the righteous, aren't afraid of it. We long for it. Let's pray.